1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And this is the word of God. Well, this morning is the last sermon in this series called God Is. And we uh, will approach the uh, most well-known, I would think, characteristic of God this morning, and that is the uh, reality that God is love, that God is love. I have some really good friends and some wonderful people that I've been privileged to know in my life. And if I were to introduce those people to you this morning, uh, this is how I would introduce them. I'm married to Wendy, and to know Wendy is to know someone who is full of joy and it's on her face. Like she is almost always smiling, laughing. Um, uh, She is a happy person. I have a daughter named Hannah. Hannah is um, uh, reserved. Uh, She loves the underserved. Uh, She loves weaker people and loves to minister to them. I have a son named Trent. If I were to introduce Trent to you, prankster, boisterous, what you see is what you get. He's just kind of out there uh, with his uh, uh, actions. He loves little kids. Absolutely. He's serving right now in the nursery, does every single Sunday at 11 a.m. working with the little kids. I could uh, go on to describe some other people. Um, Adam Kinniger, many of you know Adam, who's a doctor here in uh, our, our county, one of the most compassionate physicians I've ever met, a dear friend of mine. Or I could talk to you about uh, Mike Spath. Mike is a biology professor who's a member here at Grace who teaches in the public university and yet holds his faith and uh, his capacity to understand and teach all in just a super healthy tension. And there are so many other people I could introduce to you, but I would say to you this morning, there is not one of them that I would introduce to you by saying he or she is love. Why? Because as good as they may be and as many good things as they may have done in their lives, deep in the recesses of their hearts are places that do not or have not loved before. Uh, None of us, it can be said about us, not even your mama on Mother's Day, that she is love. It can only be said of God that God is love. And so when John introduces uh, God, it is interesting that the one doing the introduction here was the one who was Jesus' best friend. 
This is the disciple who laid his head over on Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper. This is the disciple who uh, was in the Garden of Gethsemane and saw the tears turn into blood. This is the disciple who was the only one who was at the cross. And at the cross, this is the disciple who said, yes, I'll take Mary home as if she were my own mother. And when John is going to introduce God in in his uh, little letter here in 1 John, he says, he is love. God is love. And so it is then that we learn from John's words, these six verses between 7 and 12 of chapter 4 of this little letter. It is that when we learn these words, we learn a basic uh, 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 thread that weaves its way throughout this passage. Because God is love, we must love one another so others can see God. Because God is love, we must love one another so others can see God. Look at verse 8. Anyone who does not know love does not know God because God is love. Now, I would say to you this morning, this is the most well-known and most quoted attribute of God. And in our culture and in cultures before, it has become misconstrued and misunderstood. And so in order to understand the reality of God being love, in order to understand this reality of God being love, we must look at the three other God is statements in the New Testament. Two of them by John, one by the writer of Hebrews. It is John who says God is spirit. It is John who says God is light. It is the writer of Hebrews who says God is a consuming fire. Now, when we put all of those together and we see this picture of God, what does it mean? It means that God is spirit so he can see deep into the recesses of your heart. It means that he is light so he exposes anything that is there that we would call sin. He exposes it. It means that since he is a consuming fire, he burns away anything that isn't of himself. But because he is love, he does so without destroying you in the process. Let me say that one more time because some of you didn't get it. Here it is. Since God is a spirit, he sees deep into your hearts. Since he is light, his light exposes any darkness that is there called sin. Since he is a consuming fire, he consumes the sin like burning dross off of silver. And since he is love, his love constrains the consuming fire so that you, the sinner, are not consumed in the process of the refining love of God. Separate love from all of those others and you have a God who weeks at sin, you have a God who looks and says there are no moral absolutes, there are no rights, there are no wrongs, live any way you want. I find it interesting that people who enjoy doing that with their Bibles would never exclude the God is love and just only choose the God is a consuming fire. Isn't that interesting? 
If, if you're going to treat your Bible that way, uh, extract uh, statements about God, all right, so just let's, just let's just do that with God as a consuming fire. Then we're all dead, right? God is love. God is a spirit. He is light. He is a consuming fire. Well, what does this love look like? What does it look like? Again, it is uh, God's, the, the task of God's word to pull us up out of our cultural moors. Why? We are convinced that love is a feeling. That love is a feeling. That's our primary cultural definition of love. But here we discover that love is indeed an act. In this, the love of God, verses 9 and 10, was made manifest. Key word among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent twice now his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word manifest is huge. The word manifest means to make known what has before been unknown to reveal. To make known what once was unknown to reveal. All right, so then that begs the question, is John trying to say that prior to the cross, prior to God sending Jesus, we never saw the love of God? Not so. You look at the Old Testament and you see a God who desperately loves his people, who desperately loves his people all through the Old Testament. So what is John saying? Well, a few years ago, Wendy and I, through the years, have had about a dozen kids live with us other than ours. And so one of those, um, some of you know her name was Icy. Icy, Isatu Ja was her name. She was from Senegal, an exchange student, a Muslim. When Icy came to live with us, she had never in her life been around uh, white people and uh, we are very white and she was very not and when she walked in the front door of our house the look of fear on her face was real she told us later she was scared to death and so I see became one of ours she, she became like a sister to Hannah. They shared a bedroom and uh, they, were, they had twin beds. And Hannah says that every night Icy would sing her to sleep as, as they went to bed every night. We loved her. Well, it came almost time for her to go. Her mom flew in from Senegal. We uh, had, threw a big party in our backyard and invited all the people that knew Icy and that Icy knew. And we were going to uh, really say our goodbyes that evening. And through her time with us, she had uh, latched onto Trent, who was much younger at the time, his little Game Boy, his Nintendo, and she loved that thing. Anytime Trent wasn't playing it, Icy had it, and she was playing it. So we had decided to buy her one. So we bought it. We wrapped it up. We, and Icy was stoic. She never cried. She never showed emotion. She was just stoic the whole time she was with us. But we have all of these people, about 50, 60 folks in the backyard. We've eaten. We've celebrated. We're wearing Senegalese attire. It's an amazing evening. And so we are giving Icy her going away gift. And I'll never forget Icy sitting there opening a couple of gifts 
And then she got to this one. And when she opened it, her eyes got huge. And they just began to well up. And she couldn't help it. And tears just started to flow down her face. So much so that she had to go and be alone for a little bit to deal with the flood of emotion that overcame her. She couldn't believe that somebody would do this for her. You see, the exchange rate between here and Senegal is is 600 to 1. This is a massive purchase in her mind and in her world that we made for her. And she was overcome with that. Now, if somebody were to ask us the question, is that the first time you showed her love? No. No, she ate our food and slept in our house and we loved her. But that day, evidently, it revealed it even more. So it is with the cross. The cross wasn't the first time God said to the world, I love you. But it was the ultimate manifestation of love. Amen? It was the pulling the paper back. And I'll say to you, when you personally pull the wrapping off of redemption and you personally receive Christ, you won't stay the way you were. You can't come to that cross. You can't receive that gift and not be moved. Why? Because the gift, as John describes it here twice, as he describes it in the most famous verse in all of Scripture, was his only son. That translation is best. One and only son. It was God's one and only son. It wasn't like as if we could even conceive this, that he had some sons to choose from. And he chose a less than favorable one. No, this was it. This was his only boy. This was his only son. And this God loved in such a way that he gave him for you. He gave him for you. That's unbelievable. That's so remarkable that the God of all creation would give up his only son. Well... Who did he give him to? That makes it still unbelievable. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. For while we were still what? Weak. At the right time, Christ died for the what? Ungodly. It wasn't like he was making a good trade, was it? No. I'll give my son for those who are weak and ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. While you were and I was wretched, wrecked by sin, God loved us so much that he gave his one and only few um, probably about two years ago I received a call from Bonnie Childs Bonnie is Miss Harris's daughter I lived with for several years and Bonnie said Jerry I was in Sunday school yesterday and um, this guy in my Sunday school class said I have inherited my grandfather's theological library and I don't know what to do with it. His grandfather pastored in the 30s 
And he said, I, I have no clue what to do with it. It is sat in my attic. Does anybody know anything I could do with it? And Bonnie said, I think I do. And so she called me. She said, do you want it? Well, I'm known for very few things, but the one thing I'm known for is being a nerd. Yes. Yes. I want that. So it was just a few weeks later that I drove to the Atlanta Bread Company. I was like a kid going to the candy store. I sat down. I had lunch with this man and his wife. He told me stories of his grandfather's ministry as he pastored in the 30s and in the 40s in upstate South Carolina. We then go out to the vehicles. I have my Jeep. He has his vehicle. We moved six crates, six totes of books from his to mine. I couldn't wait to get down the road, down the mountain to my house. I got down the mountain, got out in my carport. I set up tables. I spread books out. And into the night, I'm looking through these books, flashlight, trying to see what this one is and that one is when I came upon this right here. So one of my heroes is Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon in 1854 went to pastor the great metropolitan tabernacle. And it wasn't great then, but it became great because God used him tremendously. In his pastorate there, he 38 years would baptize 16,000 converts at his death. 60,000 people lined the streets. He had orphanages. He trained ministers. God used Spurgeon tremendously, though he suffered personally uh, in, in a very difficult way with depression and illness. That was 1854. He was only 21 years old when he went there to pastor. Well, in 1856, they decided they would begin to print his sermons because they were in such high demand. And so they began printing his sermons. First series printed in 1856. Second series printed in 1857, which I hold in my hand. 1857. Spurgeon's second Series. It says Spurgeon's Sermons, Second Series. Wow. So when we ordain folks into the ministry here at Grace, every time we do, I give that person an old book out of my library. Ain't nobody getting that one. <laughs> Sorry. Don't care if you're Billy Graham Jr. I'm keeping this one. Why? It's the only thing I have like that. It's close to the time Spurgeon preached the sermons. But it's not my son. It, it's not my boy. What do we call this? It's called self-sacrifice. The seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost. Because God is love, we must love one another. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. God. 
and knows God. I seldom do this, but I wish you could see this in the Greek. The first two words in this in the Greek are agape toi, agapo main. They're both based on the, the word agape. I think if you were to translate this literally to, to keep the, the assonance of it, it would be loved one's love. Loved one's love. Well, what does that look like? Self-sacrifice, the seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost. John repeats in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Loved ones love. Because God is love, we must love one another. It was last year at a routine stop that uh, five-year-old Mackenzie Brown, it was just a check, um, took a moose that she had and handed it out the window to the police officer. And little five-year-old Mackenzie said, I want you to have this moose. So there it is on the screen. So that it will protect you. And the officer insisted that he should not have this girl's little moose, which he could tell she loved dearly. But she insisted, so the officer took the moose. Well, that began quite a phenomenon as he held on to Mr. Moosey for a short time and then decided to pass the animal to different first responder units. Recently, reporters followed up on the story and listened to this, discovered that the moose had made visits then to Chicago, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire, serving alongside air marshals, the National Guard, fire departments, and even the NYPD Intel Terrorism Office. The Facebook page, Mr. Moosey's World Tour, is updated regularly with stories of what impact the presence of the moose has had on different parts of the country. Now, I want to say a couple of things, one apologetic in nature and the other application in nature. Right now, I have the privilege to sit down once a week with a young man who is an avowed atheist. And so he and I get to hang out and talk. I would say that if in a five-year-old exists the uh, inclination to give up that which is most precious to her for someone who could never pay her back, that that points to an image of God imprinted somewhere on her so that she would without inclination do that as a five-year-old. If you're looking for the imprint image of God on creation, hang out with kids on a good day. <laughs> All right. But I would ask two questions by application. Who do you love who can do nothing for you in return? Whom do you love who can do nothing for you in return. My second question is what are you giving up to make someone else's life better? Who do you love who can do nothing for you in return? What are you giving up to make someone else's life better? That 
is the definition of self-sacrificing. Because God is love, we must love one another so others will see God. Look at verse 12 of 1 John. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, in us and his love is perfected in us. What is John saying? Since no one can see God, if anyone is going to see God, it is because you and I love one another. All right, so you say, well, Jerry, aren't there instances in the Old Testament where people saw God? Glad you asked. Yes, there are. Let me give them to you. Three to be specific. Moses only saw his back, but he said, you cannot see my face. God talking to Moses. And incidentally, God considered Moses to be his friend. All right. You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God is like, you can't look on me and live, Moses, so I must protect you. Well, Moses and Aaron and some others are about to be in the presence of God. What did they describe when God showed up? Exodus 24, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. So in our understanding, we hear that and go, oh, they saw his face. Hold up. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Do you know what? I mean, what in the world? Moses, you're writing this down. If you saw God describe him to me. Moses, I cannot describe him to you. Why? Because I can't look on him and live. But can I tell you about the pavement on which he stood? How about Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Okay, Isaiah, you saw him too. Tell me what he looked like. Isaiah can only say, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Well, that's a bit frustrating, Isaiah. If you saw him, explain him to me. Isaiah is saying, all I can do is talk to you about the hem of his garment. So... John says in 118, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who has made the God the Father known. All right. So just follow with me logically for a moment. If no one has ever seen God, if, if no one has ever seen God, if Moses could only say, I saw his back and that was, that's what the pavement looked like. And Isaiah later is going to come on the scene and say, well, his, his garment, the hem of his garment, this is what it looked like. If that's Isaiah's words later and Jesus is going to make God known and Jesus died and Jesus resurrected and he ascended and he's not here anymore. Could I ask you, church, this morning who in the world is going to show God to the hurting world it's you and it's me that's what John is saying Jesus is off the scene and the only way Jesus is working in the world there is no plan b it's when you and I love one another amen 
Listen to me, parents. If you want your children to see the love of God, love each other. If you want your children to see the love of God, love each other. Listen to me, children. If your parents do not love God, love each other and your parents will see that. Listen to me, CEOs. Listen to me, presidents. Listen to me, doctors. Listen to me, nurses. Listen to me, those of you who have your own employees and own your own businesses. If God is going to be seen wherever you work, it will be because you love one another. Oh, there's much to be said for theological astuteness and for doctrinal integrity. There's so much to be said for that. And we as a church stand on it. But if we stand on it and we as a church do not love one another, then all the hurting people who filed their way through my office this very week, I've spent hours with people this week whose lives are literally falling apart, but yet they don't know how to articulate their theology. They just know that there's a bunch of people in this place who have been transformed by the love of Jesus Christ and they want to know that Christ and his love for them amen that's why they're here that's why they're here last year a storm rocked China rescue workers labored it was last October for over 12 hours and it was at the 12th hour literally that they find the la- found the last Victim. I do not know how to pronounce her last name, but her first name is Wu. Wu is three years old. When they found her, her father, whom you see here, had covered her and created a pocket of air so that she could breathe. He was dead. She was alive. And they took her out of his cradled arms. Alive. After 12 hours. There is a word I left out of our explanation. Propitiation. Wow. That word means... A covering, atoning sacrifice. Could I say something to you this morning? When we, however we get there, stumble, march into heaven, draped over us will be the bleeding body of Jesus Christ. And we will only enter heaven by his blood shed for us that covered our sins. And whether you come in at the first hour or you're rescued at the twelfth, it will be because Christ just covered you in the raging storm called sin. And you breathe in the fresh air called redemption. And you live by grace. When little Wu grows up and sees this picture, what do you think is going to go through her mind? That man saved my life. So it ought to be when you look at this rugged, 
depiction of the cross. That man saved my life. He saved my life. Eighteen fifty six, Spurgeon ascended that massive pulpit had fifteen steps. People sat all around him on two levels and behind him, and he began to preach a sermon. And this is how it went. I shall have nothing new to tell you. It will be as old as the everlasting hills, and so simple that a child may understand it. Love's commendation. God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's commendation of himself and of his love is not in words, but in deeds. When the Almighty God would commend his love to poor man, it is not written, God commendeth his love toward us in an eloquent oration. It is not written that he commendeth his love by winning professions, but he commendeth his love toward us by an act, by a deed, a surprise indeed, the unutterable grace of which eternity itself shall scarce discover. He commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let us learn then upon the threshold of our text that if we would commend ourselves, it must be by deeds and not by words. Men may talk fairly and think that thus they shall win esteem. They may order their words aright and think that so they shall command respect. But let them remember, it is not the wordy oratory of the tongue, but the more powerful eloquence of the hand, which wins the affection of the world's great heart. If thou wouldest commend thyself to thy fellows, go and do, not go and say. If thou wouldest win honor from the excellent, talk not, but act. And if before God thou wouldest show that thy faith is sincere and thy love to him real, remember it is no fawning words uttered either in prayer or praise, but it is the pious deed, the holy act, which is the justification of thy faith and the proof that it is the faith of God's elect, doing, not saying, acting, not talking. These are the things which commend a man. No big words of ready talkers, no fine boastings will suffice. Broken hearts and humble walkers, these are dear in Jesus' eyes. And thus began his sermon that he titled, Love's Commendation. Chuck Swindoll says we are most like beasts when we kill, most like humans when we judge. We are most like God when we forgive. I have a story and three questions. Robert Smith is a remarkable preaching professor at Beeson Divinity School. He's African-American. He's retained his African-American preaching style with a great theology. Uh, Dr. Smith tells this story, and I, I must just share it in his words. 
He says, I remember so very well October 30th. I will never forget this darkest day of my life. Our son was working at his restaurant when four young men got into the store, jammed the safe, and then grabbed him after jamming the register. When he could not open it, the other three fled, and the one stood on top of the counter and fired one shot into his body. Thirty-four years of life ended suddenly, broken-hearted, painful. The Lord moved on my heart to write the young man. He's in prison now. He was 17 when he murdered Tony. I wanted to write him because the Lord had been working on my heart. I wrote him in prison, and it took over two years to respond in writing. And this is the letter I received. Dear Mr. Smith, Let me say that I am truly sorry for your loss. I really am. Also, I hope that it is really you that I am writing because I've received a lot of threat mail from your family members and friends. So that's why I never wrote back. But today I thought I should give it a try because I really wanted to talk to you. I've been locked up three years now and the worst three years of my life. I don't think that I'll make it much longer though. You know, I grew up in church my whole life. I just hung with the wrong crowd on that night. I'm sorry. You probably know my pastor. I hope to hear from you very, very soon. Thank you for forgiving me. Can you keep praying for me too? This is getting too hard for me to bear. And sometimes I feel just like giving up on life. Dr. Smith continues, well, the Lord just kept working on my heart because the Lord let me see what it took for him to forgive me. He let me see what a mess I was. He let me understand that when he forgives, he forgives unconditionally. He wanted me to understand that if you ever want to get beyond this, you've got to forgive, that you can't do it on your own. So I wrote this young man because I want to be on his visitation list. I want to go up to tell him about Jesus. I want to let him know that I love him. I want this young man and my son to hug one another in heaven one day. Because forgiveness is not difficult, Forgiveness is impossible without God. Three questions for you. Number one, who do you love who can do nothing for you in return? Two, what are you giving up to make someone else's life better. Three, who do you need to forgive? We're going to sing quite a reflective song. Would you stand with me?